0: Hi everyone and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Jakob Birken, the author of Videospiele from 2022. The publisher is Wagenbach. Before we jump right in though, I want to let you know that if you like our show please leave us a five-stars review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode with your friends. And now back to the show. For a long time, the history of video games was primarily one of their technical progress, from pixelated figures in 2D to increasingly convincing illusions of reality in games like Control. At the same time independent game worlds emerge such as in the expressionist dystopia disco elysium welcome to the show jacob hi
1: rudolf thanks a lot for inviting me and for the opportunity to talk about my
0: little book actually it's pretty ridiculous to call you jacob and it's, it's because it's german <laughs> it's jacob <laughs> but well we'll see so um Jakob, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, so I've got a bit of a patchwork biography, but I'll try to keep it brief. So, my background is in visual cultures and in media theory. I went to an arts university in Karlsruhe and even studied media arts for a while. I did some programming and design work before then eventually doing a master's in theory. My first jobs were at larger exhibition spaces, the House of World Cultures in Berlin and the ZKM Center for Art and Media in Karlsruhe. I had a focus on global contemporary art then, I also ran an independent art space together with a friend in Karlsruhe, I curated exhibitions, organized conferences and so on. About 10 years ago, I joined a project on images of disasters at Heidelberg University and later wrote a PhD thesis on images of the 1906 earthquake and fires in San Francisco. And this was a bit of a turning point as I finally started to work as a historian looking at images as something that depends on historical context but that also mediates history. In between, I've worked at art universities in Kassel and Dusseldorf, and now I'm a postdoc at the University of Cologne in the North American History Department.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And of course, uh, for our show, we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility. So please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now?
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. I I think we're both the same age group, and so I've been also playing games since around the mid or late 80s. So so there's been a lot of favorite games over the decades. But if I'd had to pick a really important, important one. This might be Final Fantasy X on the PlayStation 2. I enjoy games where it's really obvious that the developers had this somehow grandiose vision of an entire world, so you get plunged into this strange setting with its very own aesthetics with lots of drama, and history, and even prehistory. And then Final Fantasy as a series has its own history too, yeah? So you'll play a later Final Fantasy game with a totally different story and aesthetic references. So, for example, there's Final Fantasy fifteen that has this really weird setting which somehow mixes post-industrial Cold War landscapes which I I can't even tell like early 2000s emo sensibilities, (laughs) but then it'll have all of the usual Final Fantasy monsters and tropes, so there is a kind of meta setting on top of the specific Final Fantasy 15 setting. But anyway, back to Final Fantasy X, so mm, this one also had a very clever plot twist near the end which basically deconstructs the role of the protagonist. It's a bit like in the movie The Sixth Sense a couple of years earlier, um, but I think even more interesting as you've been playing the game yourself. So. Eventually you find out that the guy you've been playing who's having all those complex relationships with other characters is just a kind of hallucination, basically a reaction to the collective trauma on the planet. And finishing the game means that he'll simply disappear, yeah, because overcoming the manifestations of this trauma also means that all of the other symptoms will go away like he himself yeah so i'm very much into such stories in video games yeah so as they relate to questions of agency and of course that's something video games can do in more interesting effective ways than other media So I'm obviously also a huge fan of the Bioshock series and these kinds of games that revolve around the question of what agency even means within a linear narrative and so on. Mm, What am I playing right now? I need to finish Immortality next. That's the new game by Sam Barlow where you are sifting through a huge archive of film clips to recreate the story behind some rather bizarre deaths or murders. This is obviously a very specific experimental approach to gaming. So you'll just watch film clips and then You try to piece together how they relate, you try to find a visual clue that will unlock other clips. Mm. Mm. I've also been looking more into visual novels lately. There's a great Japanese studio called Spike Chunsoft who are doing pretty crazy puzzle games with not that much interaction again but they go really deep into questions of decision-making, causality, and so on. I've just finished a game 428 Shibuya Scramble recently, which again is like a fragmented film or photo novels or like immortality in a way. Um, you're following the stories of a couple of characters and you need to figure out which decisions will enable everyone to progress through the narrative. So a decision which might seem really sensible for one character might have rather absurd or even terrible consequences for another character later on. That's a pretty fun and clever game. And honestly, also, I think a much more interesting approach to such questions of agency, of continuity and so on, than let's say more mainstream attempts at interactive storytelling, like, for example, Netflix, Panda, Snatch, and etc. Um, Oh, and I also keep playing a cute mobile JRPG, Another Eden. This is by some of the folks who made Chrono Trigger. Uh, honestly, I think we should take mobile gaming much more seriously by now. And there's a general impression that mobile gaming is just this cash grab or outright scam, which is not cr- wrong. But things like Another Eden or maybe Grand Blue Fantasy can honestly be quite amazing, I feel. So sure, the dabs don't have the budget or the hardware to do something that compares to triple A titles, but they need to keep people interested over a couple of years yeah and eventually you as a gamer then get absurd amounts of content like highly complex convoluted narratives borderline arcane gaming mechanics and so on i feel like this might be somehow comparable to cinema versus tv series where a couple of years ago, or maybe decades by now, people suddenly realized that TV isn't just a junk version of film, but a format that makes different things possible. And that's what interests me in where mobile games might be going. But anyway, that's what I've been playing recently. So it's usually a mix between things that I want to look at as a scholar or because I'm writing about it in general, or for a critique, and yeah, things that I play for fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also funny that you mention um, mobile games at as your last point, since the less when it comes to German um, gaming habits, the smartphone is just the platform to go. Right? It's the most popular smartphone, and it's also a point. I mean, we don't talk about really. Um, only specific smartphone titles, but also they have become um, by the very fact that they are such powerful machines now, we're talking about emulation powers for older for older, for elder games, right? For elder hardware generations. So this is a very interesting point. And I hope of course that we can someday talk about this, maybe in a very own racket session. But we have to talk of course we have to talk about your wonderful and lovely book, Videospiele. So Let's circle, let's circle back right here. Um, you very vividly analyze the different types of generation of games provides provide insights into the interaction of hardware and software, and show how newer video games stylistically reference the past of their own medium. So please tell our listeners how did you come then to write Videospiele in the first place yeah um that's a somehow funny
1: roundabout story so video games were very much one of the first things i tried to tackle as a student in media theory and later media arts and i didn't get anywhere with this at all so this was in the late 90s early 2000s And there were all these discussions going around about interactivity and immersion. And I started writing very strict and I'm sure very boring think pieces about games as art and so on. And I was also constantly disappointed in video games because they simply didn't meet those lofty standards for interactivity and immersion that I had established for myself. But then I myself wasn't able to introduce any relevant new practices or ideas into the scene myself, so eventually I just went back to a kind of consumer mode, you know, just playing for fun. Um, and. Then a couple of years later, I realized, realized that looking at games as an aesthetic, formal experience is actually a quite valid research question. And funnily, I had by now also a proper methodology to tackle this. Mm. For my PhD thesis, I had done a lot of research on photo discourse around 1900. So how technology makes specific things and of course images possible and how people reflect those possibilities, how they discuss this in relation to other means of image making. How is a photo different from a painting? Is it okay for a photo to look like a painting? Or is there a way a photo can look like only a photo can look and how a photo a painting will never be able to look? And how is this actually related to technology, to shutter speed, to different kinds of reproductions, etc.? And then looking at video games, I had the feeling that there are quite similar things going on here. So, for example, there's this assumption that computer graphics need to get more and more realistic, as if this was some kind of rule, yeah? And then there's this counter movement of people making pixel art games because they think that it's actually, that it actually looks better or that it looks more authentic, whatever that even might mean. (laughs) And everything has to do with technology, yeah? So with what a current machine can or can't produce, yeah, what a PlayStation 5 can produce, what a smartphone can or can't produce, yeah? Um, So instead of wondering about what games are or should be as i tried as a student i started wondering about why games look the way they do and the great thing about video games of course is that they look like all kinds of things so on the one hand you have games trying to achieve this kind of glossy, photorealistic look and you have games that look like other older media, let's say like an animated cartoon and then on the other hand, you have games that look like older games, like pixel art, low-poly, 3D, etc. And with my background in visual cultures, I was like, oh, wait, once I look at this, as historical processes. I actually have the tools to analyze this, yes, to look at which material and ideological conditions make which kind of image possible at a specific moment. Um, So this was something I had been wondering about and low-key researching for a couple of years. And then Wolfgang Ulrich and Anne kathrin Kohut started the Digitale Bildkulturen book series. And I approached them with these
0: ideas. And here we are. <laughs> yes, here we are indeed. So <clears throat> maybe um, I'd like to start with the preface to your book. Um, the aforementioned editors, Anne kathrin Kohut and Wolfgang Ulrich, state in a quote here, For the first time, people can communicate with images as naturally as with spoken or written language. The iconic turn proclaimed years ago has become reality. Now, that's a rather strong statement. And I wonder, how do you see a book connected or in connection with this very observation?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, um, if we... Look at the iconic turn becoming reality through digital media in general. We have very obvious phenomena like emojis or memes, which in a way replace or extend spoken or written language. And with video games, there's already a very obvious bias towards the visual. And one thing I want to stress in my book is that games are not only play, but also media things that mediate information. So you're never just playing, you're always also watching. And there's always an image you need to see if you want to play, but this image is only produced because you play. So this image might provide information that goes really far beyond what's needed for the game in an abstract um, rule-based sense. So hmm. and this is very much a sliding scale, yeah? So Tetris might be an extreme example where the image is basically just the interface, so it has no meaning beyond making the game work. And on the other scale is what people call environmental storytelling and visuals that don't affect the game's mechanisms at all, but which tell a possibly very complex story. I think that's pretty unique compared to other media and other types of play, like sports, and so on. Um, so, maybe let's take an example I also mentioned in my book. let's uh, Overwatch. I think it's completely feasible to analyze the different characters that you play in Overwatch just from a gameplay perspective. So. For example, there's a character called Farah who do this and that, much damage per second and then the soldier 76 who'll do a bit more damage per second, but Farah's rockets have an area effect and so on. And that's the data, yeah, the abstract rule set necessary to play the game. But all of this is presented in a 3D environment. That's what you see. And here's where the game shifts into an entirely different register. It doesn't only present us the necessary, let's say, spatial information for playing the data, but it presents this in a similar way to maybe a recent Pixar movie, so it's really colorful, quite cartoonish, but also still detailed, realistic, and the spaces that we play in are cities or large buildings, very specific buildings. The characters are shown as distinct personalities through their design, their clothing, and so on. So there's an entire level of meaning here, which is superfluous to the gameplay itself, but at the same time completely integral to the Overwatch experience. I'd say that this becomes a major trend in the late 80s, early 90s with games like Street Fighter. And that's something I try to trace in my book. So graphics at this moment have become detailed enough to represent complex characters on the one hand um, and on the other hand it's still a game Yeah, so it's very fast and you're not looking at a painting or reading a book yeah um, so the designers had to come up with really outrageous characters that will be instantly recognizable yeah mm, and the other thing about the iconic turn and the digital is that it's networked, it's globalized. So we need to keep in mind that Capcom or Blizzard want to sell their games all over the world. Yeah, so <laughs> the world and yes, as a kind of standard for the customers needs to be represented in their games. Yeah, but again, that's not a complex narrative about geopolitics um and the point is to create recognizable spaces recognizable characters to work with stereotypes and tropes and this in a way isn't that different from memes isn't it so even though we might simply ignore the surplus of visual information yeah these colorful, interesting characters. The way such games are designed tells us to look at them as if they were a story, a story in which we participate. And I think that this is a really important new thing happening here. As we're living in a culture, that very much revolves around issues of representation, anyway, politically. Yeah, um, so in the regard to like an iconic turn, I feel like games um, are or have become or are becoming more and more a site where people can explore what visual representation means, and I'm Absolutely not utopian about this. I just think that games fit in really well into current developments and discourses on representation. And, or but <laughs> if we take a closer look, at, for example, again, Overwatch, all of this can be absurdly dysfunctional. So we've got this wonderfully diverse, cast of characters and everything is rendered in this gaudy feel-good style but the entire point of the game in the end is to shoot each other in the head again and again and again so there's a bit of a disconnect between the representation um, of, um, let's say, the interesting surface or content, even, and the representation of game mechanics, etc. Yeah.
0: Mm. Now, um, your first chapter is titled "Awakening in HD," and right there, I stumbled upon an interesting observation. Um, You write that for a long time now it has no longer been a question of how something can be represented in a readable way at all, but rather the spectacular illusion is significant around ever new, ever more convincing simulations of optical effects, such as light reflections, cast shadows or transparencies. So please tell our listeners why we should pay attention to that development as scholars and researchers mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah there's that, a very old tradition in the visual arts of people wanting to be tricked by illusions. So, uh, this has been popular in painting since literally thousands of years. And so, it's maybe not surprising that people are fascinated with photorealism in video games today. And the thing is, we're actually approaching a moment where digital images might become indistinguishable from photos or film. So ray tracing is pretty great already, and there have been really insane developments in AI image generation in the past months. I'm thinking of software platforms like Midjourney and DAL e here. Um, so first of all, right now I'm really curious what will happen next. Yeah, so will we just lose interest in photorealistic illusions once? they become ubiquitous. Um, And then I'm also interested in the longer history of visual illusionism. One aspect is what I'd call the scientific gaze, so a way of looking that's informed by our knowledge of optics. That's a part of the overall project of modernity, Analyzing visual phenomena and working out formulas to describe them as laws, Yeah, so that's the science part. And right now we can simply reproduce these phenomena by running them as code on a computer. So the effects you mentioned, like reflections, shadows, transparencies, they then become kind of proof that we've mastered a specific Spectacular, complicated issue in optics. Um, There's this great little anecdote I've mentioned in my book. It's about a mirror effect in Duke Nukem 3D. So this is a game that successfully places the player in the 3D world in the sense that it draws rooms and it draws spaces according to central perspective. But we're still in the mid 90s. So there's no way for a PC to simulate complex lighting in real time. Mm. Just as a comparison, Pixar's Toy Story is from 1995. And then it took hours to render even a single frame. And now the developers of Duke 3D. They still wanted to include a mirror effect as the spectacular novelty in their game, and yeah, they actually did. Hmm. So <laughs> obviously, this can't be a proper simulation, yeah. And uh, Fun Turing, who's a programmer who's interested into retro engineering old games. Um, They did some research on this and actually found out how it works. So the mirror is of course not a mirror, but it's just a window into an exact mirrored duplicate of the room Duke Nukem is standing in. So it's a bit like a stage trick that creates the illusion of a mirror and everyone in the 90s was like wow they finally did it (laughs) they really didn't yeah and um, now uh, ray tracing games like control can simply simulate a virtual ray of light that's moving through virtual space and the mirror in control will properly reflect the room because that's what mirrors do due to science. <laughs> and analyzing such processes, I think, can be helpful to understand how our own perception is shaped by culture and technology. So, first there's a desire to be tricked by an optical illusion. Then there are first attempts to somehow fake the effect, yeah, and finally there are techniques to f- simulate it in a correct way so that's part of the history of the human gaze and also of the history of technology
0: yeah um in your second chapter and this one is titled software as medium you're claiming then that aside from differences in the context of genres games are likely to be read and understood as part of a narrative based on technological and socio-political progress could you please tell us a little bit more about this point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: yeah uh, this is somehow related to modern 3d engines and how they are really good at rendering shiny glossy things etc so that's something that happens in the 1990s and it's still very much at the core of the gaming industry i think Um, if we look at the adverts and the descriptions for current gaming hardware they are still all about realism, yeah? so how you reach higher levels of realism when you're gaming on a PS5 or gaming with the newest GeForce graphics card in your PC. Uh, and this is not that surprising because computers are made for calculating things, which means that they are also really good for simulations. So as i said you just need to find the laws the proper algorithms or something and the computer does all the necessary calculations so describe how light rays move through space and the computer produces a photorealistic image Uh, or describe how paint settles on paper or a canvas and the computer will simulate something that looks like a painting and even better Um, Because you can do this in real time, you can make a game that looks like an animated oil painting. And so that's that's pretty great, but of course, it also depends on what hardware is available. Um, Yeah, so think again of the fake mirror trick in Nukem 3D. So the people who programmed this in the mid 90s they of course knew how optics worked so they know the science they know the possible algorithms for this but yeah take the average dos pc in the 90s it simply in no way is fast enough to do real time ray tracing yeah, it's 1996 but 3d at this moment had already been established as the paradigm for computer graphics, and this is a really strange, still a bit confusing moment for me, as early 90s 3D graphics, they look quite terrible in comparison with early 90s 2D graphics, but for some reason, everyone had decided, yeah, that is the way to go, 3D. Uh, So um, fighting games are a great example for this, and 1991 the street fighter 2 which has these really pretty 2d cartoon graphics and it's extremely successful yeah one year later 1992 there's mortal Kombat, which isn't that pretty at all but it's still quite interesting it's using this digitized video for its 2d graphics and again it's Extremely successful, so it would be really very easily possible to imagine that gaming graphics would have gone into these directions. Yeah, so either high resolution hand-drawn animation or digitized video. But that's not what happened. Yeah, so um, what did happen in 1993? So again, just one year later. Uh, There's Virtua Fighter and this has like really really simple graphics but well yeah they are 3D and this is new and it sets a kind of future goal, a new goal for CGI which is make 3D actually look good. And 1993, that's also the year when Jurassic Park is released in the cinema. So we've got this concrete example how good 3D might actually look. Yeah, um, And I rewatched uh, Jurassic Park a couple of days ago and it's still quite fine if you look at this. Yeah? So, but again, like in Toy Story in 95, a single frame of 3D dinosaurs, will take a couple of hours to render at this moment so this isn't even remotely possible or thinkable for real-time gaming but then we also know moore's law that's about processing power doubling roughly every two years and so we can somehow predict that graphics like in jurassic park and toy story will be eventually theoretically achieved in real time, even though we don't get this on our screens in the arcades or at the sea at the moment. Mm. And from then on, we see lots of gaming franchises and genres moving from 2D to 3D, even though the aesthetics seem to suffer. There's this belief that 3D is better, and yeah, <laughs> indeed it is, yeah? But it still takes 10, 15 years to get here, yeah? So today we not only have quite good photorealistic graphics, like let's say in Tomb Raider control and so on, but also really interesting 2D looking Styles which were actually made using 3D engines because they simply make complex animations much, much easier. So now it's not only the newest Virtua Fighter that's 3D, but also Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat games. Yeah, so even though Street Fighter still has the super colorful, cartoonish aesthetics and Mortal Kombat has more of this like trashy, photorealistic, B-movie look. Um, and the uh, thing of even like Guilty Gear, this was 2D, strictly 2D, until even the early 2000s, I think. And then they finally switched to 3D because it's possible to reproduce this hand-drawn anime aesthetic just by using the right shaders, and, uh, to be honest, I think it looks really, really amazing. Yeah, um, and all of this, uh, this really can be told as the story of technological progress. Yeah, where faster hardware makes it possible to make games three D, to make them more realistic, and realism in the end is still what sells new games and new games are what sells new hardware and vice versa so just think of all the remakes of uh, the last of us uh, etc final fantasy 7 and so on so this is yeah it's kind of um huh, on the one hand um marketing strategy but on the other hand it's uh, Possibility to to make uh, older content available again for current hardware but because of this idea that it must look more realistic more detailed and so on okay but um let's move to social social political progress um in a way i think that this is also related to technological progress, and it's quite often a counter-movement. So pushing photorealism has very much been and still is a project of the hardware industry and larger game companies. So renouncing this can be understood as a critique of capitalist industry. (laughs) So that's the political approach, yeah? So that's this ethics of indie gaming, Renounce the illusionist paradigm. Renounce high-end, expensive hardware. And renounce triple A production, where everything's just a business decision, and so on. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's just use Game Maker Studio or RPG Maker, and let's produce an entire game on your own, or yeah, with some friends or people whose work or attitude you like. Mm. And an important side effect of this is that by renouncing mainstream gaming culture, you also renounce mm, its heteronormative, its male-centered focus. I don't go that deep into this in my book, but there's been some research on how the industry and how gaming journalism in the 1990s actively marketed games as something specifically for boys and young men. And, of course, the result of this is this obnoxious chauvinist gaming culture, which, unfortunately, is still around, but at least it is slowly being dismantled. Um, So, to a certain degree, this has to do with indie gaming, as the latter is, by default, much more inclusive and interested in new or different narratives. So the obvious example might be Toby Fox Undertale. So here's one guy developing an entire, and as it turns out, very successful game just on his own. And the game also turns the usual mechanism of role-playing on their heads. So in this case, choosing violence to overcome your opponent's will make the game more difficult yeah, the that, that's very new um and yes in recent years larger corporations have also begun to move away from chauvinist stereotypes and stories which of course is also about markets so i mentioned overwatch and it's nice cast of diverse characters earlier and yeah that's really great but i'm also quite convinced that this is less about progressive politics than in the end about selling games to more people yeah so there's a much larger demographic of people who'd like to play video games than edgy nerds yeah and corporations have begun to finally realize this and Mm-hmm. I think that we can and should criticize corporations like Activision Blizzard for these kinds of uh, yeah hollowed out politics. But in the end, it's also just good that there finally are more diverse options in mainstream games. Yeah, So the only thing that I'm worried about is that this kind of visual representation this kind of diverse surface yeah becomes the main focus of what progressive politics in gaming is about yeah so in the end there's not much of a point to having diverse options in games if gaming itself remains inaccessible yeah because it's too expensive for maybe many people and because of harassment
0: which is still very much happening and so on, yeah? Yeah. Talking about spectacle, so your third chapter then is called Industry of Spectacle, and I find it highly interesting that you describe games as a medium that finally turn our dreams or vision of a virtual reality into something, and I see my air quotes here, real. Yeah, Uh uh-huh
1: yeah and i'm i'm still a bit on the fence about this myself uh but yes i i feel like that there's a lot happening in this direction so maybe we've been a bit misled about the idea of vr as a fully immersive spatial experience as in the Star Trek Holodeck or in Ready Player One. And maybe we should think more of the collective cultural aspects of virtual space, yep. of how social practices are at least as important in constituting spaces as um, let's call it the 3D architecture as an immersive space, yeah? Um, And because, yeah, uh, let's say that something isn't just real because it's a convincing illusion, it's real because it immediately affects you, even if it's just on an emotional level, yeah? So, I'm aware that this is a very constructivist perspective, but it might be a bit more useful than thinking of virtual reality just as something that tricks our senses. Yeah, mm-hmm. And um, good examples could be Fortnite becoming a concert venue, or the Animal Crossing boom at the beginning of the pandemic, or all those really absurd projects that people pull through in Minecraft, like building a functioning 8-bit computer that runs Tetris or something like <laughs> that. That's <laughs> weird. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, one, one thing that might be important here is uh, to discuss games in context to platforms, yeah, or even games as platforms. I think that this is a quite powerful notion. Um, and this also fits into what I said about the iconic turn earlier about the surplus of meaning that games offer when we think of them as media. Uh, so when even the silly shooter like Overwatch becomes a kind of stage yeah, where you perform as the characters. So, Um, These games, Minecraft, Fortnite, they are not only software platforms and rule sets, but they also provide own spectacle, own aesthetics, content, etc. So my point here is that games like these, they give us a cultural incentive to participate because they have their own style, they have their weird stories, content, and so on and then they make it possible to turn them into your own space yeah something that you also can somehow collaboratively design and so when i'm saying that games are slowly turning into what we thought virtual reality might be i think about games being collective digital spaces so ones that are actually convincing and interesting as spaces yeah Um, so this is about cultural practices but it's totally also about technology Mm, and i called fortnite a platform yeah but (laughs) in the end there's another platform at work behind this which is of course the unreal engine and this is Another development that could be very, very important in regards to virtual realities. So in the sense that they not only look great, but they are extremely flexible and um, interoperable. So Disney is producing its Star Wars series like The Mandalorian with the Unreal Engine where the actors are playing in front of projections, which are rendered in real time. And what's happening here is a homogenization of, let's call it special effects entertainment media, (laughs) which is happening on the technical level. And yeah, we could easily imagine that entire sets from such shows get reused. For games, yeah, or that they are even developed with both gaming and TV in mind, yeah, from the beginning on. And hmm, um, the Mandalorian, this is of course live action TV because it's recorded with actors acting live, yeah, but it's still recorded for post production. But I've um, yeah, think of how real-time virtual sets could be used for live live TV, which isn't recorded, but which is happening live, yeah? And I think that this could really blur the borders between gaming and linear screen entertainment theater in ways that have been discussed since decades in game studies and theory, but now I think this might become really interesting in ways that we haven't
0: even really imagined. Yeah, Yeah, when I I, um, first thought about an actual implementation of this very technology you were just uh, talking about on theater stages... This really blew my mind, right? Because the possibilities, at least on paper, they seem to be endless. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, but but we need to talk about also virtual photography because that's also in your book. I mean, um, this book. Don't get don't get fooled out there. This book. It's not a thousand page, page turner, so to speak. It's actually quite the opposite. But. Um, it's easy, easy to talk about all these topics. I mean, this is really... I knew why I invited you, Jakob. This is really interesting. So let's, let's switch to virtual photography then for a minute. Because you argue that in, in, in opposite to a screenshot, the, the term, the very term photography becomes more than a metaphor in modern 3D games. And I wonder um, how so.
1: Yeah yeah that that's a really great topic. I I've seen on social media that you've been working on this too recently, right? It's so, true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for yeah, for, for me this is a very exciting but perhaps very theoretical issue coming from art history and having worked on photo theory. So I've mentioned earlier how does this shift towards these more more, more scientific methods of generating photorealistic images? Yeah. So you'll get images that look real because they're a simulation of optical processes and not because they are visually similar to the real thing, like this fake mirror in Duke, Newcan. So now ray tracing, that's a simulation of virtual light rays moving through virtual space. And even though all of this is still numbers and on the computer being calculated, I do think that it's not really wrong to compare this to photography. And yeah, uh, this is quite a huge deal in regard to ontology because now there's an entire virtual world of which an image needs to be produced so that we can even see it yeah while in 2d games there's nothing beyond the images beyond the distinct visual data in the first place. Mm, let me try to um, give an example for this. So if we look at 80s, 90s 2D games, everything, or at least most things, apart from maybe some special effects, is created from sprites and tiles. So there are discrete images that someone has drawn or digitized, and everything we see is assembled from these images. Yeah, but in contemporary three D games, there's an entire world that, in a way, <laughs> would exist without being visualized. No,
0: that's a tricky idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all of this is data, but there is this kind of strange distinction, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, There's a a really, really crazy moment in the first demo video for Unreal Engine 5 from 2020, which was also something that really struck me and was a kind of, uh, yeah, starting point for me for writing, uh, the book, even though I don't really mention it in the book anymore, so um, there's uh, the Epic Games guys, which are the programmers behind the uh, Unreal Engine. They are showing us a nicely rendered cave as an example for their technology, which they call Nanite technology, which also shows in which direction it is going. So like very very fine details, and so. Um, Nanite creates these 3D spaces out of triangles, which are assembled into meshes. So everything we see is basically a surface made of little triangles. Um, So if we think back to 90s games, like let's say Quake, or then the first Unreal, these triangles or polygons are really, really huge, so visible as being these geometrical shapes. Hmm, Not so now. So for a couple of seconds um, in this demo video, they switch to a mode where every triangle is colored differently. So the idea behind this is to show how many of these triangles there are and how detailed this is. And um, yeah, well. Basically, we just see noise, visual noise, yeah, because everything is so detailed that the triangles they are often just the size of a single pixel on screen, or even smaller, but you still have to somehow show it on the display, so it becomes a pixel, yeah. And um, at this moment, we could really say that 3D worlds are even more complex than the images that can be rendered of them, yeah, because the images, they are restricted by both the available displays and, of course, our own vision. And this is something that is, I think, quite different to um, 2D sprite graphics, because the 2D sprite is always the 2 sprite, yeah, so of course you can like, reshape it, etc. Uh, but there is nothing beyond, and here we have this strange um, ontological, yeah, or let's say virtual, virtually ontological shift. Mm. And, yeah, so if we think of um, the future here, in the most recent Tomb Raider games, uh, Lara Croft apparently has about thirty thousand hair strands on her head, and that's roughly a quarter of what a human
0: has on their hair head. Mm-hmm. Um, so except, uh, except of course, of, except of course for me because <laughs> I'm this one, <laughs> I'm this one bald guy in the room. <laughs> Yeah,
1: um, (laughs) but there will be technological solutions to this too.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so um, think of this. So right now we have like already, uh, we're approaching the number of uh, uh, detail that is uh, basically identical to the real world. Yeah, so... um, And we can access these, uh, yeah, let's say, highly complex 3D worlds through a process which itself becomes more and more similar to how we see our own world, even if it's just numbers on the computer, but it's still like light rays that are bouncing around and connecting to our own point of view. And in a way, I think that in theory this is even quite a bit more amazing than how it looks like now on gaming screen. So I'm really excited about what will happen in the
0: sense next. Hmm. Hmm. I uh, like the way very much you're discussing retro-aesthetics in your book in the context of visual identity. Um, could you please deep-dive a bit in order to get a better understanding for our listeners here?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I've said earlier that my perspective is a historian. Yeah? And in this sense, it's interesting to see how important history has become in gaming or for gaming. And there are all those different movements like retro gaming as an attempt to make older games accessible again retro aesthetics as an attempt to continue styles and techniques that seem depreciated this is a counter movement to the ideas of progress we discussed earlier yeah so you can criticize triple a photorealistic graphics as being Shallow or being too much entangled in capitalist industry. So yeah let's go back to graphics that are obviously handmade and which don't try to sell you an illusion and the expensive hardware you need to create this illusion. Um, but of course. In the 80s and early 90s, game developers didn't choose to do pixel art, um, but this was a tech issue. Yeah, you just adjusted low resolutions, you had restricted color palettes. Um, for example, think of this very striking combination of cyan and magenta, which we still associate with 80s, retro, cyberpunk and so on so this is of course part of a general 80s style yeah. think of miami vice and so on all these pinks and blues uh, but in relation to gaming it's also the two default colors available on early cga graphics cards Yeah. Um, and these moments are what Interests me the most when there's a specific material or a specific technological condition like CGA that corresponds with aesthetic concepts like this pink and light blue um, pastel colors of the 80s. So, of course, all of these technological restrictions don't apply anymore. So, this has become an aesthetic or maybe even ideological choice right now. So, of course, low resolution graphics are no longer the only option. And they've, in a way, become one style among many, many others. Yeah, um, And there are several conflicting arguments to choose such retro styles. Um, this can be a naive throwback to better simpler times uh, but then of course we should ask for whom these were actually better and simpler times or if they were just better and simpler because people were kids back then and didn't have to deal with adult responsibilities etc yeah so this is a kind of naive biographical nostalgia maybe uh, maybe it' Even is a privileged kind of nostalgia because it's really not a given that everyone had a great childhood in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, um, so uh, nostalgia in a sense can be quite reactionary, um, and yeah, earlier times can thus be also somehow seen as better times uh, by chauvinist reactionary gamers because games still were this boys only domain, that's what we talked about previously, yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, um, there are, of course, also interesting aesthetical arguments, and that's where I'm really, really conflicted Myself. Um, so I'm not very fond of concepts of authenticity, but then, funnily, we could argue for both sides for both pixel art and this high res 3D photorealism as being more yeah. authentic than the other. Um, so, on the one hand, pixel art. Is visibly digital, yeah. It's pixels on a screen with colors picked from a palette. So this is still what's happening even with a 4K uh, monitor display with a graphics card that has, has 16 millions of colors. It's still a palette. It's still pixels. And pixel art is, in a way, more honest about this, yeah. And <laughs> this. Also, of course, ties into an entire DIY culture. Think of chiptune and analog synthesizers and maybe really a kind of critical knowledge how computers and electronics in general work. Yeah, So in a way, this is about knowledge and um, uh, being aware of... The computer's restrictions and possibilities but on the other hand we could again say that computers in the end are best at simulating things and then we could say yeah actually the perfect simulation the perfect illusion is what a computer does best so this is what a computer should do yeah um, and in this case these artificial restrictions like Just picking your colors from a specific palette or using low resolutions or even simulating low resolution, this becomes just really pretentious and kitschier. Um, So what I'm trying to say is that in terms of visual identity, we just need to be aware of the implications of these different styles. So I don't think we should take these avant-garde aspects too seriously because they're just like mm, restrictive and we shouldn't be too strict about games having to look this or that way Uh, but we should also realize that historical styles come with historical baggage uh, so that nostalgia might be as toxic as this kind of unchecked tech bro optimism where only the new is good enough yeah
0: Mm. yeah most definitely yeah so last but not least you are discussing uh digital games within the context of uh air quotes power fantasies let's get into that a little bit more please Mm -hmm. um
1: I think this has much to do with escapism and how escapism relates to empowerment. Yeah? So, popular culture in general has often worked with power fantasies. Yes? And I mean, we can even look back to the beginning of modern novel writing, like Don Quixote. <laughs> he is this mm, either delusional or. Um, consciously oblivious fan of chivalric romans, and he thinks that he needs to be a hero who's battling villains and monsters. And honestly, this is it's really baffling when we think of this. So Cervantes is making fun of this kind of character in the early 17th century. And uh, now, a couple of hundred years later, this character or this this idea of heroes battling villains and monsters it really has the paradigm become the paradigm for popular storytelling once again in games in the cinema etc yeah Um, but nevertheless so this powerful or maybe even invincible hero is I think a more complex trope than it looks Um, and for example uh, on the one hand they can be somehow aspirational yeah think of of course Superman on the other hand they can be also very reactionary Um, because in the end the typical action hero they will solve problems through what through violence yeah um which for very good reasons is a taboo in modern societies um so this isn't exactly a really utopian or progressive forward looking concept of empowerment right because power then is just equated with violence and with overpowering um and with, with tabletop RPGs and with later video games, you can finally play as the hero, yeah, as someone who's valiant and powerful, um, at least in this classical um, mode of uh, RPG storytelling. So this is changing uh, too right now, of course. Um, and we can think of this. Uh, Playing as the hero (laughs) as a kind of like culturally sanctioned way of being like Don Quixote. Yeah, so that's a kind of framework where fantasizing as a kind of practice, yeah, it shifts from being delusional to entertainment, yeah, to gaming. Yeah, and what I found really (laughs) Um, funny or um, telling is how this became a kind of feedback loop in um, not only games but also stories about games yeah so for example there's this, this really bonkers space opera the last starfighter which is from 1984 and this is about a guy who is living in a trailer park um, and who doesn't have like really good perspectives for his future yeah? but he gets to save the universe um, just because he was very good at an arcade game and it turns out that this game is a kind of recruiting tool for an alien space force, yeah. (laughs) Um, So he became the hero because he was a good gamer, yeah. And this is really another level of power fantasy. So first we have gaming as a power fantasy. So being, playing as a space pilot on an arcade machine and thus being powerful and able to save the universe on this, in, within this game and then we get the next fantasy of this actually coming true and coming true because you're great at gaming yeah so um, there's this idea of the escapist practice turning out to be the truly heroic one in real life that's of course also something that uh, is very present in stranger things right now and so on yeah um, and in the end, there's even an entire genre built mostly around this premise, yeah, which is isekai in Japanese pop culture. Um, but actually, the, I think most embarrassing example I know about is uh, this Hollywood movie Pixels from 2015, which even manages to somehow mix. Um, retro nostalgia with these escapist power fantasies and this is about this bunch of middle-aged guys who then are the only ones who can save the earth from alien invaders just because they've been very good at arcade games as kids. yeah. <laughs> um, and I honestly, I don't even want to be totally negative about this, so the playing the hero this can be quite an interesting experience so i think that the batman games are good examples or maybe the newer tomb raider or wolfenstein's and i mean when you play these characters you're quite aware of playing an extremely strong extremely capable competent character who's also completely entangled in these horribly dangerous situations. Yeah? So they're constantly compromised, exposed to violence. And so while there are all those uplifting moments, yeah, when we as players, we have Batman or Laura Croft perform some kind of amazing acrobatic feat or whatever. But there are also moments where I honestly just felt sorry for those characters to have to go through all of this crap, which I'm making them do as because I play them, yeah? And I know that this is just a good storytelling trick that makes me feel something, yeah? And I'm being manipulated here. But also such stories at least explore issues of power and heroism, instead of simply fulfilling people's power fantasies.
0: (laughs) It's true, yeah. Yeah, these these, uh, so-called parasocial uh, relationships are really tricky. And yeah, absolutely right. On the one hand, you you know exactly that you've been manipulated the whole time, but on the other hand, you just can't it's just our big hearts, man. It just shows you know, you're not dead inside. I mean, come on, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we are entering the final round now. And this is where I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta reflection. So, first off, what aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut? And secondly, and I'm really excited to ask that one, where do you see game studies as a research field in general at the moment?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots of things. Yeah, so I mean, you already said that the book in the end is really, really short. So um, even my writing process was like I'd write some chapters on one aspect, like the evolution of 3D, and then I'd realize that there's still so much else I have to cover and then I shortened the previous chapters to make space, and so on. So this happened, I think, like three times throughout the writing, yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> where to start? I had, yeah, as I said, right now I really written much, much more on realism and 3D which I had to cut and that's something I've been working on for other texts since then. Um, I would have also liked to write a lot more on representation issues. So uh, maybe really go more deeper into this um, iconic turn question and on this entire idea of video games being a stage, yeah? so how video games relate to other practices of reenactment, role-playing, cosplay, and so on. Uh, But finally, one thing I left out completely is interfaces. Um, So, like how we access game content via interfaces, but how interfaces also become content themselves. I did a seminar on video games at the Hochschule Düsseldorf a while ago. And I asked the students to interpret a screenshot from Diablo, the first one from 1997. And I specifically asked students who've never played this or a later Diablo game before. Um, But they could really easily identify all of the interface elements because. It's an established iconography by now, yeah? So we know that a red fluid will stand for health and that the blue one will be mana or some kind of magical power and that there's a skill bar and so on. Um, But it's still not just an interface. It also adds atmosphere. It has a specific design. It might even be part of the narrative. Um, That's, for example, something that happens in a game like horizon zero dawn where the interface is basically a plot point yeah um and this on the one hand this belongs very much into what we discussed in regard to the iconic turn but on the other it's also something i would have liked to write about in detail because it's also really specific to gaming i think yeah Regarding game studies as a research field, yeah, that's a a really huge question. Um, And I I recently watched a talk you gave on this at a frog conference in Vienna, and I I really kept thinking about some discussions about visual cultures or Bildwissenschaften, the German version Uh, we had a while ago. And how about Bildwissenschaften might be either an academic discipline on its own or rather something that is hmm, used within our other disciplines like art history or film studies and so on which is more like a set of methods that is clustered around a specific subject and with game studies I have the feeling that right now there is more of a kind of mapping process yeah so finding different methods and perspectives to look at games which honestly i find really really productive not only within game studies as an own academic scene yeah so um i mean i've been teaching north american history for a couple of years now and Increasingly students want to look at how games reflect or mediate American history. Yeah. So and now I can tell them, yeah, look at this or that text by Eugen Pfister, for example, or the, this recent or upcoming reader on I don't know, Red Dead Redemption or something like this, you could check out or so there are there's this urgency to look at games as a major cultural force even in upper disciplines yeah and then there's people who are working to establish this academic scientific framework for this on different levels yeah and it's a bit difficult for me to tell if this constitutes an academic discipline, yeah, which is distinct from others, or if it's more of a heterog- heterogeneous <laughs> field with a mutual subject like gaming, and which is similar to me with, when I look back at our bildwissenschaften discussions, but maybe this doesn't really matter. Maybe this is just a question that's relevant for I don't know funding issues at universities. <laughs> to, to <laughs> say that. We are doing game studies. We are doing build mm. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, just we don't give a something about the money then. Ha. <laughs> so, Jacob, no, Jakob, we've taken up. We have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, what? Please tell us what are you working on uh, now, and of course, what will you be playing next? Yeah. So I'm
1: in the middle of working on a lengthy essay. So this will become another little book, which is just a bit longer than the Videospiele one. And this is about digital photorealism and its history. So I'm again looking into ray tracing, but this time from a bit of a different perspective. I'm starting with the history of illusionist painting, in the 17th century and then i'm discussing these specific aesthetics of 90s ray tracing you know these povray software packages etc and how this interestingly became a retro style again with vaporwave in the early 21st century yeah um so this is in a way also something i cut from and the video spiel book, where I did want to look a bit more into this kind of critical nostalgia of vaporwave as this attempt to deconstruct, to play with nineties tech utopianism. And there are a couple of games I'd like to look at this uh, at in this context and. Most importantly, I think uh, Paradise Killer. That's an um, indie adventure from 2020. I've already played this for a couple of hours while researching for the video book, and it looks really amazing. This has, has like lots of these crazy marble textures and shiny stuff and weird shapes. Yeah, what you'd really associate with. I don't know all these kind of failed surrealist povray images from the 90s, yeah. Um, and, and everything is, is still, on the one hand, it's perfect, but then it's kind of very off, yeah, so the textures are misaligned, so there's a kind of, I don't know, um, uh, of, I don't know, uh, tiles which are not really aligned with how the floor is laid out in a building and so on. So, um, and it's obviously fake, yeah? And this, uh, um, this kind of conflict within the aesthetics becomes, in a way, I think, a kind of comment or political statement on this emptiness of illusionism and on luxury and on hedonism and so on. So, um, in the end, this new book is going to be, again, one on digital images, but this time less on media and more on postmodern culture in general. And, yeah, also our relation to time and history and how this is mediated through images. And finally, there's also another huge project I have to tackle, which is my habilitation, my habilitation thesis as a postdoc. Yeah. This is on a very, very different kind of topic. It's on the material culture of utopian communities in the 19th century. Uh, Yeah, I've been working on this for oops, a couple of years now, and it's really time to turn it into a book. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's uh, unfortunately this one is a bit difficult to use as an excuse for playing video games.
0: But maybe I haven't looked hard enough yet, and I'll find something eventually. Yeah, right. You just have to to enter in the in the uh, Steam uh, search field "Utopia Plus uh, Plus 19th Century" or something oh, yes. like this. <laughs> so um, yeah, great projects projects for sure. So. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you being on the show today. And um, what what actually our listeners don't know, you really, it was very, very, very spontaneous. So thanks a lot. I really enjoyed our talk. Uh, So take care, Jakob, and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs) So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author, or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. That's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, wherever I'm there. So see you in a bit. Take care and goodbye.